Well, if you want to keep that passage there open in front of you, you'll find that really helpful. Hopefully you'll have received one of those sheets sort of as you came through the door. If you didn't, there might be some spares still there. Um, we'll also celebrate communion after this. So hopefully you got one of the little sort of things there. Again, if not, there's a whole bunch of the back. Feel free to just get up and grab one now. That's fine. I won't be uh, offended at all. If you get that reading there in front of you, that would be great. Uh, a key feature of movies is a sort of moment of self-doubt that comes before the final showdown. I don't know if you've recognised this. You know, and the character or the characters need a sort of inspiring pep talk to take on the ultimate sort of journey or task that's sort of put before them. Whether it's in Lord of the Rings or Braveheart or 300, Dead Poets Society, Rocky, Shawshank Redemption, Star Wars, they all contain within them these moments of these big pep talks before that sort of final journey the hero or the heroes need to take. Well, this here in Exodus 6 is God's pep talk to Moses before he returns to Pharaoh. But this pep talk isn't about searching inside himself for great sort of fortitude to do something extraordinary. In fact, the point is, look to me. That is, look to God. Look to what I will do. That your hope and your confidence will be found in me, not in yourself. Chapter 5 left off with Moses leveling an accusation against God, didn't it? That he hadn't delivered and that things had got worse. He says, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh, he's done evil, and you've not delivered your people. But Moses had forgotten what God had told him. Back in chapter 4, verse 21 to 23, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's a chapter 6, verse 1, comes in response to the way it ended in chapter 5, that accusation of Moses. This is God's response to it, that this was God's plan and that he will come good on his promise, that God promises he will deliver his people and that Moses needs to trust God, not his doubts. So I want to show you a few things here as we just move through this uh, story together. But maybe the one thing to sort of remember above all and that we'll come back to is this simple idea to look to God when things don't look good. Think about some of those pep talks in those movies, whether it's Lord of the Rings and Aragorn and his great speech before the final battle there that this day we fight. Or whether it's Yoda, do or not do, there is no try. Or whether it's William Wallace in Braveheart, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Or Professor Keating's inspiring speech to his students, seize the day, boys, carpe diem, make your lives extraordinary. Or maybe even Rocky, it ain't how hard you can hit, it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. All of those pep talks, all of those speeches, all of those are about what you need to do, what you need to find within yourself. But this pep talk here that God gives Moses is not about looking to yourself. It's about looking away from your fears, your frailties and your failings, 
The message is, don't look to your abilities, don't look to your skills, don't look to your strength, don't look to your courage, don't look to your faith or your confidence, but look to God when things don't look good, to who he is and what he's done. Look at verse 1 there. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. We see both God at work within creation and yet also human agency and responsibility for their actions, just as we've seen in, in chapter 4 too. Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. This isn't going to be a painless exit. They're not going to be leaving on good terms here. And look at how he realigns Moses' thinking here. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. What is in a name? It says here he's appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. We can read of that. He appears to Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham at the time is 99 and childless. God Almighty then is the one who overcomes seemingly impossible odds to come good on his promises. He appears to Isaac as God Almighty, Genesis chapter 43. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. This is as they're facing famine in their own land and having to go to Joseph to plead for help. God Almighty then is the one who helps the helpless escape the powers of the world. He also appears... To Jacob, we're told, we can read of it in Genesis chapter 48. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. God Almighty then secures our future in the face of uncertain circumstances. This is how he's revealed himself to his people before Moses. And so God draws Moses back to his track record of deliverance on his promises for his people. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord, Yahweh, that is, I am who I am, as he revealed himself in, in the burning bush, I didn't make myself known to them. And that word they're known is really important because here it means, in Hebrew it has this context, that it's not about really primarily information, it's about experience. I didn't make myself known to them in that way. They didn't experience me as I am who I am. But the Exodus will reveal God as I am who I am. And to do that, Pharaoh must first oppose God that God may finally defeat him. I also established my covenant, verse 4 tells us here, with them to give them the land of Canaan. That was a promise he'd given back in Genesis 17. He had established his covenant with them. And the word there, again, it's not just that he had uh, created it, he'd sort of written it down, it's that he had implemented, he'd set it in motion, that God does all that he does to come good on all that he said he would do. 
And so the question is, will Moses trust God's concrete record of deliverance or his doubts, fueled by projected, predicted anxieties? And I wonder if you and I maybe know how that feels, that tension. Trying to trust God when things around you don't look good and when it's tempting to project our anxieties onto him. But Moses is called away from these anxieties to the proven track record of God's faithfulness. Look to God when things don't look good. Secondly here, there's hope for the hopeless. Where are we to look for hope when we feel hopeless? In his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther wrote, Hope changes the one who hopes into what is hoped for, and the thing hoped for and the person hoping become one. We look in hope to what God promises, and we become, in turn, what he has promised in the gospel. Verse 1 to 4 here showed us what God had done, Verses 6 to 8 are going to show us what he will do, but verse 5 tells us why he does it. And we see that what God does comes from who God is. Look at verse 5 there with me. It says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, and I have remembered my covenant. Because he has always remembered his covenant, remembered his promises before, This is what he will do for Israel now. And we see in verses 6, 7, and 8, three parts of that promise. We've thought about them before. We'll think about them again. It's about God's rule. It's about God's people. And it's about God's place. It's about his rule, verse 6, that God will deliver Israel from the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh to his righteous rule. Look at verse 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. There's three parts of that promise there, isn't there? Firstly, that he would bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That God will save them from the, the literal, the actual acts and actions of oppression that they face but secondly there's something even bigger than that it's not just about the actual acts of oppression secondly that he would deliver you from slavery that God's salvation his deliverance his rescue changes the status for them from slaves under Pharaoh to sons under God and then thirdly he promises to redeem you, a redemption, a rescue. And there's two aspects to this whenever this word is sort of used throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament too. Because within Jewish sort of culture and society, there's an expectation and an inbuilt thing of, of redemption within families. That if you fall into trouble, that you can look to an extended member of your family, a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, who redeems those within the extended family who, who come into calamity and danger. The one who can come along and can make things right for you and look after you and take you under their wing. There's a great story of this in the book of Ruth. This is what Boaz does 
for Ruth and for Naomi, her mother-in-law, that he, an extended member of the family, comes in and takes up the responsibility and the duties to care for them and to provide for them. And so God is promising to be like that for us, and it has that relational and that familial uh, tie that he is a kinsman redeemer for us. In fact, the New Testament speaks of Jesus specifically in those terms. That's one aspect of it. But the second element of redemption always is about it always involving a price. That to redeem the one who is trapped, to redeem the slave from slavery to freedom, there is a price. And the redeemer is the one who is willing to pay the price that you were not able to pay for yourself to set you free. I'll bring you out from under the burdens. I'll deliver you from slavery. I'll redeem you. And look at how he will do it. Look at how that verse ends. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He is both a God of justice and grace. There is an outstretched arm of grace towards his people and yet also a hand of judgment to those who are oppressing his people. There is both judgment and embrace. We see here that freedom isn't autonomy. Freedom isn't moving from uh, the unrighteous rule of Pharaoh into complete autonomy over yourself. That actually freedom is moving from a malevolent and unrighteous ruler to a benevolent, a righteous ruler. Freedom doesn't come from any earthly political system or figure, but from serving God. There's a promise of his rule, but secondly, there's a promise about building his people. Verse 7, God has chosen Israel to be his people, whom he will protect and provide for. Look at verse 7 there with me. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is a promise, actually, that runs right throughout the Bible, and history ends and culminates with it finally being fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21. And so we see how deeply relational God is, that he's not a distant and detached deity, he's not a sort of conceptual being who's just sort of overseeing from afar. He is a very personal God. You will be my people, I will be your God. There's a promise of his good rule, that he'll build his people. And then lastly, verse 8 here, that he bring them to his place. God is bringing Israel to a place of their own, to live and to serve him in. He says, verse 8 here, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. There to step out in trust, he will provide a homeland. Without a land as nomadic people, they would always be vulnerable, always be insecure, and never be able to freely worship. See, you know, and we can think about this even for ourselves as a church, can't we? You know, Grace Church began by taking a step of faith to follow God in trust into the unknown, out of the belief that in order to follow God faithfully, according to his word, what else could you do but to respond in faith to him? It meant leaving a settled home and a structure for the uncertainty and insecurity of being nomadic. 
But place matters, doesn't it? And if we want to build a church beyond a first generation, place matters. Eventually, you might have to take another step of faith into the unknown, trusting God to settle in a place. And as we approach 10 years together as a church, that's a question we'll have to continue to consider carefully, isn't it? Where is God calling us to settle and to build, to ditch the tents and to set up home? God's people need a place. There's hope for the hopeless. But the question for Moses, the question for Israel, the question for us is whose voice is louder? I wonder if you remember this scene from the Lord of the Rings uh, films. There's an amazing scene of a battle between two voices in the head of the character Gollum or Smeagol. The one who wants to do what's right and the wicked Gollum consumed by the precious. I'd try to sort of imitate the voice, but I, I don't think I can do it uh, justice. Gollum here, he says, we want it, we needs it, must have the precious. They stole it from a sneaky little hobbitsis, wicked, tricksy, false. Smeagol says, no, not master. Yes, precious, false. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. No, a master is my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. I'm not listening. I'm not listening, he says. You're a liar and a thief. No. Murderer. Moses is facing a battle against voices. He hears the voice of God promising deliverance, freedom for Israel and the overthrow of Pharaoh. He hears the voice of Pharaoh that says, no, he will not let God's people go. He hears the voice of the people of Israel who do not trust him and are broken by their suffering. He hears the voice of his fear and doubts that says nobody's going to listen to him and it will all be in vain. So the question for Moses is, which voice will be louder? Whose voice will he listen to? Verse 9 tells us, the people of Israel didn't listen because of their broken spirit, their literally shortness of spirit. You think of sort of the cartoons where a character gets sort of crushed under the anvil and they're literally squished into some sort of paper thin inside. The shortness of spirit, they feel this big. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, they don't listen. And I wonder if you maybe know what that can feel like. And so they kill the possibility of a better life before it's ever existed because they can't hope. The voice of God with all those great hopeful promises is drowned out by the evil they've suffered and they're stuck in. Yeah, listen to God's response here. Verse 11. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. That feels, maybe like a pointless task. It feels, maybe, as if God is not really bothered by the issue Moses has raised. Maybe he's not listened at all. And this sort of seems to be how Moses reacts to God. Look at verse 12. Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? What hope am I supposed to have? If they haven't listened, how is the global superpower leader going to listen to me? For I am one, he says, 
of uncircumcised lips. And it turns out that issue that we might have thought was dealt with in chapter 4, verse 10, we said, well, but I can't speak. And then God has responded, well, who's made God's mouth? Can't I make you speak even if you can't? Turns out that issue's not solved yet for Moses. And I think there's maybe a bit of ironic humor here. You might vaguely recollect the rather strange story of Moses almost being put to death because he had not uh, got his son circumcised. And here he says, I'm one of uncircumcised lips. And I wonder if some of the implication is, if you thought that the circumcision was a problem, you haven't dealt with what I think is the real problem. I can't speak. And yet you ask me to go and speak. takes time to change, doesn't it? So don't be discouraged if you're maybe fighting the same battle that you were fighting five years ago. It takes time to change. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm one of uncircumcised lips. And look at God's response. Verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel. And so there's a decision to make. Pharaoh's spoken. Israel have spoken. Moses' doubts have spoken. And God has spoken. And God has commanded the same again. So whose voice is louder? Whose voice will Moses trust? And then we're grounded in reality you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to spend very long at all thinking about the genealogy. But here we are grounded in reality. Why does the narrator include this genealogy? It may sort of feel a bit unnecessary, a bit of a diversion to the sort of story, really. I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Inception. Uh, this is going to spoil it if you've never watched it uh, somewhat, but there you go. Tough luck. Uh, they come and go between reality and alternative realities. And so they have a way of trying to remember where they are. They have a little spinning top. And in reality, the spinning top stops at some point. But when they're in an alternate reality, of course, the spinning top just doesn't stop. It just continues. This genealogy reminds us where we are. And it roots us in a time and a place and among a people. It reminds us that what we're dealing with is reality, with history, not mythology. That this didn't happen once upon a time, but in the days of. These are the heads of their father's houses, we're told. So it's not an exhaustive list, it's not everybody, but it's a snapshot of some of the sort of more notable people. I'll just draw four very quick things from that list of names. Firstly, attention is given to the priestly lines. You can see that in verse 16 there, Gershom, Kohath, Merari. These are all people that will continue to serve in the tabernacle in uh, the narrative sort of to come later on. Attention's drawn to priestly lines. Secondly, future characters are introduced. Korah, Mishael, Elazaphan, Aminadab, Nashon, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, and Phinehas are all people who will recur later in the story, and they're introduced for us here by the author. Thirdly, Aaron is established as a worthy partner and mouthpiece for Moses in this lineage of his. One commentator, Peter Enns, puts it like this. By placing the genealogy after 6 verse 12... 
the reader is possibly reminded of the solution offered previously by God to Moses regarding his inability to speak. The point of this genealogy in this context seems to be to establish Aaron as a worthy partner in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, particularly in his role as Moses' mouthpiece. Attention's drawn to priestly lines, future characters are introduced, Aaron is established, and then fourthly, something big is happening. Genealogies always come immediately before something really big has happened or will happen. It's one of the reasons why before the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we get a genealogy. It gives us a little spoiler that there's something big to happen next. And so before the explosive drama of all the plagues and everything else that's to come here, our narrator grounds us in the family trees of these, our characters. Lastly then, we see in those last few verses there, 26 to 30, one last thing. I wonder if you've ever had a moment in which you've made a prediction or you've said something that has come back to bite you. And now people in your life who love you say to you, remember when you said the purpose of repeating what we already know has been said and happened here is to be able to say in a few chapters' time, Moses, remember when you said. And these verses are a little bridge for us uh, between the calling of these deliverers and the deliverance which is now going to begin. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people. This Moses and Aaron, who people knew, who people lived around, knew his family, and grew up around and God had called, these two are the ones. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, we're told. And this tells us already that for all the complaints, they did go and do as God asked. But the most significant bit is those last couple of verses, 29 to 30 here, because it reminds us what happened so we can remember as we go forward. The Lord said, but Moses said to the Lord, the Lord said, go and tell Pharaoh. Moses said, people haven't listened. He's not going to listen. Now let's see who will prove to be right. Chapters 7 to 14 are going to show God proving he is, I am who I am, against Moses' pessimism and against Pharaoh's pride. And so this is our reference point. Remember when you said this wouldn't work? Remember when you said this wouldn't happen? How did that go, Moses? In a moment of hopelessness for Moses and the people of God, here is a final pep talk for him. And the message isn't look inside yourself, do better, try harder, be more, but look to God. God will save his people from this external physical suffering they face in Egypt under Pharaoh. But there's also an internal, a personal suffering and struggle which we all face too. And Jesus came to deliver us in the same way God delivers his people here. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 onwards tells us this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He, that is Jesus, like himself likewise partook of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I want to leave you with three very simple points from those verses that come back to where we very first began. When things don't look good, look to God, who in Jesus has faced all the same struggles. Notice how it tells us that there. He himself likewise partook of the same things, humanity. He was made like his brothers, that is us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In hopelessness, look to Jesus, who has lived a life just like us, who has faced the same struggles, the same temptations, who knows, who understands, who has been there, who has faced it too. When things don't look good, look to God, who in Jesus has faced the same struggles. Secondly, when things don't look good, look to God, who in Jesus makes things good. It tells us that through death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. We live facing the reality of death, don't we? Every day, that reality getting just a little bit closer that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because it's not just that we die eventually, but we die every day. And sometimes we fail to live in the first place. Because fear of death looms over us and shapes the way we live our lives. So when things don't look good, look to God who makes things good. And when things don't look good, look to God who makes people who aren't good, good. It tells us here he helps the offspring of Abraham, i.e. that is he helps human beings, not angels. We've not met God's standards. We sin and are trapped in sin. In fact, it just seems to come from within us. Jesus said it's not what goes into your body that contaminates you, but it's what comes from inside of you. Jealousy, envy, pride, lust, anger, on and on. We try to be God. We hurt others. We use others. We don't honor God, a bit like Pharaoh, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We have no hope to please God in our own strength and our own efforts, but we can look to Jesus, who having faced all the same temptations, resisted sin, on our behalf, in our place, and won a battle that we lost for us. That he faces God's anger so we don't have to, dying in our place to rescue us from his judgment. When things don't look good, look to God.